God's faithfulness in the midst of uh, the triumphs as well as the trials of life. And that's a great, uh, great truth. Uh, the longer we live, the more we grasp that truth. So it's wonderful. Appreciate that so much. If you have your Bibles, uh, please take them and turn with me to the book of Titus. So we go back and to continue our series through this letter that Paul wrote to uh, the young pastor on the island of Crete, uh, Titus. In uh, our text this morning will be ver- the first two verses, but I, I want to read uh, the, just the context of it, so I will we'll read all the way at least uh, through verse 8 this morning. Titus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks as we open your word once again this morning. Thank you, Lord, that your words are eternal truths, unchanging throughout eternity. They speak to those whom you first revealed it to. They speak to those whom it was passed on to. And they speak to us today who read it now and study it now. Lord, because man really doesn't change. Names change, time, dates change. But, Lord, our circumstance as lost, sinful, condemned human beings, apart from your saving work, Lord, we desperately need you. We need to hear your word. Lord, so often we do turn to our own ways. So often we do feel like we know what is best for our lives in our times. But your word is always the best for our lives, for every time. And as you are faithful, Lord, we, as we study your word, we pray that, you would conf- that your spirit would confirm and, and, can ch- and teach us and, and remind us of the faithfulness of your words, its truthfulness to our times, our need for it today. 
that we can obey these words and trust that you will work it all out for our good, even when in our own finite understanding we doubt. We're afraid. Father, may your spirit not only teach us your word, but convict us, Lord, cause us to desire and have the will to obey your word that we read this morning, that you would shape your church so that we would be the kind of church, a sound church that reaches this world with the good news of Christ, that we would manifest Christ to our world, and that the world might see Christ and be saved just as we are. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Well, this, uh, actually this past week, our elders were discussing about uh, our, a, one of the classes in our Sunday school curriculum, church history. And we were talking about it, and we think, wow, should we have it? Should we cancel it? You know, should we make it longer, shorter? You know, just kind of just a passing comment. I was thinking about that. Now, well... And a lot of people, when they come to church history, they say, well, why do we need to study church history? Or even if those of you that might wonder why, uh, why do we even need to study history at all? Well, we study history because, as the saying goes, history repeats itself. And if we don't learn from the, our history, we don't learn from the patterns, the circumstances of human, human life, uh, the, we will make the same mistakes again and again and again. And that's kind of human history. That's uh, what we do. And so it is, it's helpful for us uh, as a church, uh, we, uh, Lord willing, to continue to study church history in our Sunday school class. And we come to a text that has a setting which is strikingly familiar to our days. It's just amazing. A lot, of, a lot of these New Testament texts are very similar to our days, no matter uh, even when it was written some 2,000 years ago. We have in the setting of this book uh, of Titus uh, a, a ruler of the land who is uh, known to be quite extravagant. He's compulsive. He's corrupt, at least by many, uh, by many standards. And yet he's so popular with the commoners. You've uh, heard of this, uh, this ruler ruled over a people, and particularly this, the people who received this letter were a bunch of people that were known and prideful of their uh, independence. Well, or you could say their rebellion. They were a rebellious lot. They, they pride themselves in being able to uh, withstand any authority. They like to, they, well, they like to cheat and lie and all that stuff too. Um, and they, but they, they were a rebellious group of people. And that kind of, and you think about it, sometimes I think about the, our nation today. Uh, we, by many, uh, by many people's valuation, we have a similar president, leader of our land, who's been quite extravagant. Uh, some would say he's compulsive, and some would say he's corrupt. Yet he's popular, uh, at least with uh, many people. We have a, we continue to live in a nation that where many of us are people who, well, we're rebellious by nature. It's cool to be a rebel. Uh, we like to, we pride ourselves in, in being able to participate in, in protests and in marches and anything that the man tries to keep us down with. That's at least what I say. Well, in that historical and political setting of Paul's day or Titus's day, uh, really that's a, that's a setting that mankind finds itself throughout history. 
And we find ourselves in a similar setting. And the temptation for us, and this as was the temptation for the people on the Crete, was to basically not obey, to rebel against authority. And so Paul writes this letter uh, in that, to Titus in that kind of setting. And when we get to chapter 3 here, particularly verses 1 to 2 and 1 to, uh, all, the really, all the way through 11 even, it is a very fitting word for Christians who live under authority that we do not maybe like or prefer, or at least maybe we don't, we don't find ideal. Now, speak, these words, I believe, are helpful for us because I've, I've seen, uh, you know, you can just read on uh, just in various places the, the, the anger, the frustration, uh, sometimes the, the, uh, uh, even the bitterness that not just our world feels, but uh, even as I read some uh, Christian websites, Christian news websites, you can see in the comments that people are upset. People are angry. And we, we find ourselves living in a, a very cantankerous political world. Now, I don't, I don't really, I'm not here to tell you what to politically believe or hold to. Uh, I don't really, you know, don't really matter in a sense because it's just for this time, this place. And there are going to be times where uh, those we disagree with, uh, we might get to the place, especially if we disagree and they're in place of authority, we can easily get bitter and angry about. And the temptation for us is that we start maligning those who we disagree with, condemning those we disagree with, and resisting. You, obviously, you know, you just go, just follow the news, follow the uh, political discourse around the world. And really, our political discourse is almost like a, an antonym to civil discourse, isn't it? It just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, opponents are, are not just wrong, but they're often labeled wicked. And we as Christians are caught up in it as well. But the Word of God tells us that we must rise above this. We must rise above our passions for politics. You know, politics is just like any hobby that you might have. You can like it. You can not care for it whatsoever. But we cannot get caught up in it. Just as you would say, it's foolish to get caught up in your Pokemon. Yeah. It's foolish to get caught up in your politics too. We must rise above the, the hatred and the, and the bitterness that is constantly going in our world. We need to remember that we, and those of us particularly that love our politics, and, and, I've, and I think that if you're a San Franciscan, you're a true San Franciscan, you like your politics. At least you, you ought to. That's kind of just, I felt like that's, I picked that up after I moved here from Seattle some 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> Time flies. Uh, and uh, we realize we just, we do not change this world through government as Christians. We, we change the world through, a, through the gospel, right? Because how, and we learned today that how we conduct ourselves goes a long ways towards conveying the message of Christ. Uh, the Christian's conduct uh, has been the focus of this letter. And uh, Titus is often called a, a Christian conduct manual. And it teaches us that the truth that we believe in 
the sound doctrine that we hold to is a truth that leads to godliness. We've kind of looked at it in general. I'll give you, a, I'll give you just a general outline of the book so far. Chapter 1 describes the, the godly conduct, the godliness expected of church leaders. And because there are those who are false teachers that they need to stand, they need to, are contrasted with. Chapter 2 calls for godly conduct in the church community. Among Christians in the community, we need to conduct ourselves in a certain way, whether in uh, no matter what stage of life or what gender we are, we have a, uh, no matter state, uh, a, a status in life in our in society, uh, slaves as well. We need to conduct ourselves in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. Well, as we ride to chapter three, then today we see that godly conduct is also required of Christians in relation to the world itself, to the secular uh, world outside that we live and work in. Christians ought to behave godly in the world as a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that we'll look at in this week and next, is very similar in structure to chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Instructions on godliness are given, followed by a motivation, a reason, explanation for why. And that the motivation, the explanation, the reason for why we conduct ourselves in godliness is always because we have a Savior. Because we have a Savior who is Christ. Because of the gospel message that we want to, that we want to adorn, that we want to uh, manifest to the world, that we want to show. So here, uh, as we look at the, our verse today, with these first two verses of chapter 3, we're going to look at the instructions to Christians for godly conduct in the world. And then next week, as we look at verse 3 through 8, we're going to look at the reason and the motivation, the explanation. That is, it's because of the gospel of Christ. The key, ver- uh, the key verb in these first two verses is the word remind, remind. And uh, the idea is basically just calling to mind something. And what it tells us, that this verb tells us that Paul and Titus had, had basically taught these truths before. Paul and Titus, remember, if you recall back to when we introduced this book, Paul and Titus apparently had some kind of ministry in, on Crete. And that's why Paul says to Titus, when he writes his letter, he says, I left you on Crete to set in things that remain, that set in things in their order. There, he left them on. They had been there. They ministered. Paul had to go somewhere else, but he left Titus there to finish something, to finish some uncompleted business. And so these truths that, he, that we're going to learn, we're going to look at today, are not new truths. In fact, I would venture to guess if we, as I talk about these things today, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know these. I've heard these things. I understand them. They're old, but they are old truths that needed reminding as a parent, I've come to realize that this uh, half of, not just half, 90% of parenting is reminding my children of what to do. I find myself repeating often, and I get a little tired of it, uh, to tell you the truth. And that's just begin- I've just begun. I think I've said certain phrases at least hundreds of times by now. Can you imagine over a lifetime how many times we've got to repeat ourselves, remind our children, remember, be gentle. Remember, <laughs> just like remember, remember, and that's. But that is, in a sense, that's what the Christian life is too. Probably within, I've heard uh, one pastor say, with uh, after five years of preaching, preaching ministry, after that, you're basically just reminding people of what, the basics of the of the of the of the scriptures. In these first two verses, Paul tells Titus to remind Cretan believers of seven duties towards the world. I call them seven reminders for Christians living in the world. 
And it's kind of interesting as we look at uh, these seven reminders, we're going to sign that the tenses that we find here of the various verbs are all in the present tense. And you've probably been, you remember, you've been told before that in the Greek language, the present tense always conveys a continual ongoing action. So these duties are not just one-time actions, but these are, these are to be always a pattern of our lives. We're always to be doing these things, regularly to be characterized by these things. They are attitudes and actions that should characterize every Christian, every one of you who name the name of Christ as you live, as you interact in the world that God has called you to. When you live in this manner, you will make the gospel more attractive to others. You will illustrate Christ to them. And they will see it. And they will glorify your God, your, who is in heaven. And by the grace of God, they too may come to repentance and faith because of how you live your life before the world. So let's take a look then at these seven reminders for Christians living in the world. So there's seven. So we've got to go kind of quickly through them uh, a little bit. So let's see. Let's just go right about, get to the first point then. Uh, first reminder. What does Titus remind the Christians on Crete who live in the world? He reminds them first to be subject to rulers and authorities. Be submissive, as uh, some translations put it, to their rulers, to the authorities in our land. The verb here is very sim- familiar to us already as we've studied uh, the book of Titus. It's been used twice already of the wives' submission to their own husbands in chapter 2, verse 5, and also used of slaves' submission to their masters in chapter 2, verse 9. Literally, it's a, it is a, it's a term that comes from the military. It's a military terminology. It means to, uh, you can imagine different uh, uh, soldiers align themselves or put themselves under the authority of a commander. It pictures placing or arranging oneself under the authority of someone else. Submission, we might say, is, would manifest in actions, but it's primarily, first and foremost, an attitude. It's this willing placement of oneself under the authority. You cannot be forced, in a sense, to be subject. You are to willingly subject or submit yourself to authority and rule of another. Particularly, Christians are to place themselves under the authority of their rulers, your rulers, your authorities. These two words, rulers and authorities, interesting, these words are often in the scriptures used of like the spiritual forces of, you know, of uh, wickedness in the heavenly places. But here in this context, it's pretty clear that it refers to earthly rulers, uh, whether it's an emperor, a governor, or even in our days, we can think of all government authorities, it's uh, on all levels. It could be the, the, parking, the parking enforcement uh, person. It could be uh, the, 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 guy at, uh, the guy at the utility company. It could be your employer. It could be policemen, your teachers, those of you that are students. It could be your principals. And really, these are all classified or count as rulers and authorities. Paul's words here are pretty simple. Place yourself under the authority of those rulers and authorities in your life. His words are quite similar to what we find in Romans chapter 13, which uh, I love having read in our uh, call to worship. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, they go into much further detail about the whys, the, the how even, of this submission. Romans 13, 1, Paul writes to the Romans, and uh, these people lived at the same time, by the way, as, uh, in similar times as uh, the recipients here in, uh, in the book of Titus. He said, 
every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's the same terminology, same wording. To be, to be submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority set from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Paul's explanation here for why we are to submit authorities, because all authorities are ultimately established sovereignly by God. And he makes further on, he says that because they're established by God, to resist authority is to resist and oppose God. And there will come a, a condemnation upon you if you oppose that authority. You'll be judged in some way. And so all authority then in our lives, perf- and all imperfect authority, by the way, some better some worse. doesn't matter. Some we like, some we despise. God says we are to subject ourselves to governing authorities. We are to submit to them, to place ourselves under their authority, and to not oppose them or to rebel or resist them. These are easy to grasp. They are hard to live. The whole sermon is like that. It's easy to grasp. I know what it means. But it is absolutely hard to grasp. We don't live in those days. But the Christians who were the recipients of this letter to the Romans and even the Cretans who were living uh, recipients of the letter to Titus, they lived under the authority of, do you know which emperor? Nero. Emperor Nero. And uh, he was, of all the emperors, up there with some of the worst, especially if you were a Christian. He's probably most well-known for burning Rome. At least believe, most people believe he burned Rome, and then he blamed Christians for, doing, for setting the fire. Uh, he enjoyed, uh, you know, of course, um, persecuting, killing Christians uh, as sort of as sport, essentially. But he was a, a wicked ruler. He was uh, not afraid to murder his mother, his wife, and almost everybody that was around him that was close. He basically did whatever he wanted to do. He was uh, um, just kind of morally, he was pretty devoid of all morals. This was Nero. And yet, God calls Romans, tells the Romans, God tells uh, the Cretans to submit themselves to such an authority. That's hard especially one who was looking to kill them. Of course, it's hard for our days, not that we have such a ruler, but we live in a world where this idea of submission is basically not valued. It's not something that we think of as, oh, that's a great thing to do. Submit yourself. When you hear the word submission, we hear weakness. We hear cowardice. We hear someone just rolling over and letting them just run over you. But rebellion, just think about all the movies, about the rebel forces. The rebels are the good guys. The rebels are brave. The rebels are strong. Not those who submit. Weak, cowardly people. We live in a world where we are proud to rebel. We're proud to declare, that's not my governor. Not my mayor, 
not my president. We live in a world where protests are encouraged. Well, you would post, you're going to post on Facebook, say, oh, look at me. I participated in this protest, this march. You don't post on there, oh, look at me here. I'm obeying the, my mayor today by, you know, sending in my taxes. There's no glory in that. This past week at the G20 meetings, uh, those of you that follow the news, protesters, what did they do? They, they burned cars. They looted supermarkets. They threw Molotov cocktails at police officers because they were opposed to world globalization. They didn't agree with what their governments were doing. <laughs> As Christians, though, even though we live in a world where submission is, is not a value, even though rebellion is glorified, especially when you do not like your authority, as Christians, you will find no justification in the Bible to not submit yourself to authority. For to submit to your authorities, the ones specially, and particularly even the ones you don't like, the ones we don't agree with, is still an act of submission to God. And that's tough. But that's what God calls us to do. Closely related to this submission is the second reminder, and that is to be obedient, to be obedient. We are to not only submit, but how our attitude of submission manifests in an action. And that action is to obey. It doesn't say, it says be obedient. It doesn't really say who we're to be obedient to. We could have said we're to be obedient to all people, but just from the context here, it, it, and the closest to the first uh, reminder, that it's probably obedience. It's likely this obedience to authorities that's mentioned here. So the question then arises, well, what if the government asks us to do something that we disagree with or find morally wrong? Can I disobey the government even if I don't agree with what they're asking of me? Hopefully we've thought about that. I know in the news of, of late, of, of late uh, you kind of you read about uh, different Christians. Uh, in their, they have different businesses. There's one, I think I read about a baker recently who refused to, to bake a cake for a, a, a gay wedding. And uh, he you know, had to pay the penalty for that because it was, uh, by our laws, uh, a discrimination. But let me, let me answer uh, the question, if you, can I disobey the government if I don't agree with what they're asking me? And the answer, of course, is, well, it depends. Depends on what it is. If the, a government asks you to do something that would be sinful or disobedient to God, then, yes, you must disobey government. You must. And we learn this from Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Acts 5.29 there, uh, I'll just put it the key verse, but if you look at the surrounding verses, the Sanhedrin had commanded the apostles to basically stop preaching in Jesus' name. They say, these were the religious leaders, they were their, the authority, the Jewish authority, so they had authority over these apostles, they were the, the same Jewish community, they, 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 in fact they continued to even worship among the temp, at the temple, but the apostles replied, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. It literally says, it is necessary to obey God. This is what is necessary for us, to obey God more than men. And so they would not stop preaching the gospel because God had commanded them to preach the gospel, to stop preaching the gospel. We just all of a sudden stop preaching the gospel. That would be for us a disobedience to God because God has called us to go, therefore, into the world and make disciples. 
We're to proclaim him, make him known. And so they, and what's kind of really cool is, and if you kind of read the rest of Acts 5 there, the, gospel, the apostles continue to preach the gospel one more time in verse 30 and 31. 30 and 31. Uh, as a consequence, of course, they, they were flogged. They were flogged by the, their leaders, but nevertheless, they kept on preaching Christ, and they rejoiced that they suffered shame in his name. So the deciding factor whether we should obey or governing authorities or not is whether our action or what they're asking us to do would be, would make, be disobedience to God. And sometimes it's clearer than others. Sometimes it's clear-cut disobedience. But there are going to be times where it's not so clear, where you may apply various principles and, it's, and to decide if this is something that is disobedient to God. It may come down to simply your convictions, your conscience before the Lord after we sought seeking counsel. Like the apostles, if we must disobey rulers, we should always do so with a submissive heart. Just because we may not be required to obey doesn't mean we are no longer to submit to them, to have a submissive heart, to show respect to authorities because the gospel's at 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 the heart. We must be willing to, even as we have to disobey, to accept the consequences of that disobedience, as the apostles did here in Acts 5. Even as, as Daniel, remember Daniel, when he, when he and his friends decided not to eat the, the meat that was offered to them in the Babylon court, but so they wanted to eat veg, vegetables instead, they were willing to, be, to accept the consequences. However, so, if the government asks you, though, to do something that is not disobedience, but it's something maybe you don't like to do, like they ask you not to pay tax, to ask you to pay taxes, they ask you to, uh, to, to, you know, not cross the, the double line, double yellow, white lines. Uh, they ask you to make sure that you don't park over two hours on, in a two-hour parking zone. Uh, you know, anything that's basically not a violation of God's word, but it's just a, a rule, laws that are they ask of you that, uh, that would, as far as the government's concerned, helps them to run the, 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 the world, then we should be obedient. We should be obedient. Strive to be obedient. The early Christians living underneath the rule of Roman government had many reasons to rebel, but God's command to them was to submit and obey. And you may be thinking today of how basically unrighteous maybe government can be. And I've always believed that. That's kind of me. I, I've always been a cynic when it comes to government. I think it's all corrupt. I think it's all politics. I think it's all, like, you know, wicked. I'm sure they think the same about the church, you know. The, oh, the church is all corrupt, all wicked, evil as well. Uh, we can all agree to disagree about that. But no matter how you perceive government, how unrighteous you think it may be, how ignorant your authorities may be, how unfair your authorities may be, there's never an excuse for us to not be submissive and not be obedient. Their lack of character, knowledge, or justice does not give us justice, any justification to disobey. And that's the hard part. We need to trust God's word that he is going, that even if we may not, it doesn't make sense to us. And so, well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. We must trust that if we do so, God will, as he promises word, make it so that the gospel and the church continues to grow. Maybe it'll be persecution that will still exa- exist, but also that's possible 
that as we submit and are obey, that it may give us a peace, an opportunity as Christians to continue conveying, preaching the gospel. Thirdly, we move on. A third reminder for us is that we need to be reminded to be ready for every good deed. As Christians, we, gotta, we need to be ready to do good deeds in our world. The phrase good deed is a key phrase, key theme in the letter. And we saw it in chapter 1, verse 16 of uh, false teachers that are worthless for any good deed, implying that faithful teachers then are going to be people who are ready for every good deed. Faithful teachers are not just those who faithfully teach God's word, but they themselves should be ready to do good deeds. In chapter 2, verse 7, Titus there uh, is exhorted to show himself an example of good deeds. In chapter 2, verse 14, our Savior gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. And just as we read in chapter 3, verse 8, already, that this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, and that's Christians, right, that's us, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. The biblical text is clear, just even in Titus, but it goes all over the scriptures. It starts with Jesus, in fact, that Christians, believers who are saved by grace, are to engage in good deeds. We're, we're to do good deeds. We're to be ready. We're to be prepared. We don't just, oh, uh, we shouldn't just get to a situation they think, well, let me see, what should I do here? Oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I can't do it. I can't be troubled. We should be ready, prepared for every good deed. Why is this important? Why is it important for us to do good deeds? We're going to learn, of course, that it's not because we're trying to earn our salvation. That's going to look at that next week. It's not the good deeds we do in righteousness that save us. And there's an answer in a sense where you could say that we do good deeds because of our love for God. And because, but, and one answer why I'd like to share with you is that we do good deeds. Why is it important? Because good deeds show to the world our love for our neighbor. Good deeds show our love for our neighbor. Jesus illustrated this with the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You recall that parable in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 and 37? A Jewish man, he was a Jewish man, he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, so he was a Jewish man. He was on his way, and he was beaten, and he was robbed, and he was left for dead. And along came a priest, a pastor. A pastor came alongside and looked at the man and said, oh, oh I can't be troubled and walked on the cross of the way. Then a, a Levite came. Oh, it was an elder. An elder came by, and he saw the same man there. He, he said, oh, I, I don't have time. And he walked around the way. But the good Samaritan stopped an unbeliever. An unbeliever came by, the good Samaritan, we call him, and he saw the man. He was on a journey. He had things to do. Yes, it would be trouble, but he stopped. He bandaged the man. He cared for him. He took him to safety, and he paid for his care. The Samaritan had completely different beliefs than the Jewish man, but his good deeds towards that injured Jewish man showed what? Showed his love for his neighbor. He treated that man as his neighbor. See, the people in the world around us may have a different set of beliefs. They may have a different religion, different politics, a different lifestyle. But our good deeds will often be the first witness to the love of God in their lives. And that will be reflected by our 
love for our neighbors. Our good deeds shows our love for them. And our love for them show, reflects our love for God and God's love for them. And that's why we do good deeds. That's why we should be ready for every good deeds. Because that's basically, when we talk about being ready to share the gospel, we should also be ready for every good deed. And that's hard to do in our days. We're more like the priest and the Levite than the good Samaritan. What are some good deeds that you can do? If you're a worker, then maybe you can be, you can be helpful on a, with your coworkers on a project. Yeah, you're not getting paid to do that. But maybe you're on a team, but you can be helpful. You can offer advice. You can uh, use extra time that you have to help them uh, through a difficult thing, a difficult task. If you're students, then it's, it may be a little easier to maybe kind of work together, help a fellow student that's having a difficulty in class. Uh, maybe there's someone in your life, a neighbor that is basically just going through trials. They're going through de- uh, valleys. They've lost a loved one. They're going through depression. Uh, they're going through d- sickness or disease. And they need someone to talk to, someone to listen to as they go through their trial. Just simply being available, buying them a lunch, a meal, caring for them, sending them a card, spending time with them. All these things can be counted as good deeds. Are we available? Are you ready for every good deed? We remind ourselves, that's reminder number three. Reminder number four, uh, in, verse, in verse, we get to verse two. These next four reminders in verse two are basically, they seem very closely related. They describe the Christian's conduct not just toward governmental authorities, but toward all men in general. So it so expands this, this uh, these conducts that we're to reflect are not just towards government now, but it's kind of expanding towards all people. The fourth one that I'm reminding to is to malign no one, or as some translations, to speak evil of no one. We get our English word blaspheme from this word. And when the object is God, it, it, blaspheming is the idea, to say something uh, wrong, uh, false about God. But when the object of this verb is people, then the idea is not so much of blaspheming them, but is a reviling them, defiling, defaming them, I'm sorry, or speaking evil of them. The word can also be translated as slander them, to, to say something that's, that's false about someone, to speak evil of someone. It, it almost not just speaks so much of content as well, but it speaks also of intent, that it means to speak words to harm another. And when we speak slanderously, maligning them, we, want to, we speak words that want to hurt someone. You know, in our country, it is a, quite a, it's a, practically a hobby <laughs> for us to, to criticize government leaders. Oh, we all do it. Yeah, yeah. you probably, if when I was young, we, oh, no, I won't say that. But, uh, but uh, I've known people that have done that. Okay, so it is, and we get to a place, we just cross the line. We, in a political world, we can expect for people to have differing opinions, right? We should just understand that. That's part of being, living in a world of people. We have differing opinions on how to deal with different issues. And we can expect for people to criticize the opinions of those we disagree, we disagree with. And these in itself are not wrong, or, nor are they forbidden. You can do these things. Maybe even in some circumstances, you ought to do these things. We ought to, uh, to uh, speak critically about the actions of our, of our leaders, whether governmental leaders, business leaders, and yes, even church leaders.
and when we practice civil discourse over our differences, that oftentimes or sometimes becomes a means of arriving at a better solution for all. But as you and I know in our world, and maybe it's just our country, I don't know, I haven't been in many other countries, but it seems it's, it's open season on government leaders. You become a government leader, it's open season on you. Leaders are maligned for their decisions. They are labeled as uh, idiots, fools. They are, are called evil. Uh, they're declared to be harming us. And if they're harming us, then the next logical step, of course, is what? If they're harming us, then they should be stopped. And if you ever read political news, then uh, I, I almost don't want to go there no more, but I, it's kind of, you know, it's like, uh, it's just kind of fascinating reading. Go to the comment section. You're like, you know, you just go to the comment section of the politics, uh, some political news article. And you can almost guarantee, you don't got to read too far. You know, it's going to usually be one of the top comments. And someone's going to write something like that. They won't say it directly in this way, but it basically implies this government leader should be just killed should be removed, should be dropped off a cliff, should be punted into the ocean, is some of the terms they use. Uh, well, and I think, no, though I, I'm pretty sure they don't, you know, literally mean that. They just kind of wish it. But as you, many of you, uh, we've known or kind of follow in the news, the recent shooting at the con- congressional softball team practice shows that there are always one or two or maybe a little more who are all too willing to move from words to deeds. But it begins with maligning, slandering, speaking evil of our leaders. Yes, we can speak critically. uh, We must must be critically at times, but not to malign, to speak evil, to harm them. As Christians, we need to stop adding fuel to the fire, whether it's politicians, business leaders, employers, or even church leaders. We must never allow ourselves to fall into the trap of maligning those we oppose. Even if you think of them as enemies, Jesus calls us to love them. We are to pray for them. Pray for all leaders. And again, we are, we are allowed to critically evaluate and even to express those evaluations in an appropriate manner. In, in discourse with others, in, the, in political discourse. Even as we look at in Titus chapter 1, verse 10 to 16, Paul himself will, will call out false teachers. He'll name names. He'll, he'll describe how the danger that they are, the, the threat that they have to, to the church. And so we learn then that refusing to, to slander does not preclude Christians from confronting sin and false doctrine when needed. When our leaders do something that is, uh, that is sinful, that, is, that speaks error, we can speak up. And in the right setting, we ought to speak up. Later in chapter 3, verse 10 even, Paul will instruct Titus to even reject a factious man, a divisive person after two warnings. So it's appropriate to call out error. Just want to make sure we understand that. It doesn't mean just because we're submissive, just because we're obedient. It means we never critically evaluate that we don't remain naive and think, oh, yeah, everything that he does is just gold. Everything that she does is just, just lucky charms. We are, we are to be those who, are, who do not 
do not malign others, but yet call out error when it's seen. It takes wisdom to know how and when to do this. To malign and is when you, you seek to harm. To be critical, to call out error, seeks to heal. Godly conduct doesn't make war. Godly conduct seeks to make peace. That's what we see in the fifth reminder. To be peaceable. Be peaceable. This same quality is expected of elders in 1 Timothy 3.3. The word literally means to not be quarrelsome. Don't get into quarrels. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to get into fights or quarrels with those you disagree with. Uh, and that's what the world does. In fact, it's if you don't get into quarrels with those you disagree with that you stand out. And Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9, verse 50 are, are quite insightful. In Mark 9, 50, Jesus says these words. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It takes a little bit unpacking this. Uh, uh, but Jesus is essentially reminding his disciples here that their lives are meant to be salt. Christians were salt and light. And this salt idea uh, can either have the sense of pre- uh, a preservative or adds flavor or makes a, a contrast with the world. Our lives, Christian lives, are meant to be different from the world. It's meant to add something, something that would make food stand out. We're to, we have a unique role to preserve this world because the world is eager to quarrel. Why is there wars? Because you want and you cannot have, so you fight. And you, want to, you, you, you have conflicts to get what you want. But Jesus says, Christians, we're to have salt. We're to be salt of the earth. We're to be different. And how are we to be different? Don't quarrel. But be at peace with one another. Followers of Christ who regularly quarrel with one another, what would you think about them? Not very Christianly. But Christians are to show ourselves to be different by being at peace with one another. Paul will take it further when he writes in Romans 12, 18. If possible, recognizing that sometimes it's impossible, but so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men, not just believers, but even unbelievers. And again, this is written to the Romans who were under Nero. Christians, we need to accept the fact that there are going to be people in this world who will disagree with you. And they will never, in, in this lifetime, they will never see it the same way as you do. You can try to argue them with your point of view, and some of you are great at arguing. Some of you love to argue. Some of you love to have that, con- that, con- that conversation. But even if you could get, bring someone to your point of view about some political issue or some other issue, ask yourself, what would that ultimately accomplish? Do they really need to understand your political view about economic world globalization? I don't think so. They really need to understand your point of view of why the city should or should not uh, go and cut all trees in our neighborhoods and residences? Probably not. What do people need ultimately? What is one thing that, you, that we are called to, to teach and if we can, by all means, convince people of? The gospel, right? That's the gospel of Christ. See, being peaceable is a further testimony of our Savior who came to make peace between God and man. Being peaceable leads to opportunities for the gospel because if there's war, there is no opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We're running for our lives. We want to be, live at peace so that there might be a, an opportunity for us 
to share the good news. Being peaceable. We need to be peaceable as, as Christians. Closely related to being peaceable is the sixth reminder for Christians. That's to be gentle. Again, very similar to peaceable. And they are so similar that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, of the qualification of elders, both peaceable and gentle are there. The Christian leaders are to be characterized by this. And, and they are to be characterized by this because of the natural conflicts that sometimes happens in, in leadership levels. But they are to be examples for the flock to follow. But to be gentle means to not insist on one's right. We don't need to insist on being always that we have to have it our way. We can act in graciousness, act with forbearance when others disagree. The gentle person is going to be someone who doesn't retaliate. It's an attitude that doesn't hold grudges, but always gives others the benefit of the doubt. When someone treats you poorly or wrongly, and that happens quite a bit, doesn't it, in our world? Think about it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe they're under a lot of stress. Perhaps they're facing something real painful in their lives. We can forbear with them. Ah, so they cut us off. Ah, so they cut in front of the line. Ah, so they didn't greet you as appropriately. Ah, because you can forbear with them. They weren't so nice in their words. We can forbear and be gentle because Christ does the same for us. The ultimate motivation for why we ought to be gentle is probably revealed in Philippians 4, 5. They're the same word as used. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. See, the reality the Lord will return soon or near makes basically any offense not worth pursuing. Why? Because the Lord is coming back soon. Sometimes we want to right wrongs, right? Some injustice was done against us. We, some offense was committed to us. We want to right it. <laughs> and I understand that feeling. Uh, it's, it's, kind of, it's a strong feeling that we have, especially when we're the one who's wrong. But then when we wrong someone else, we say, oh, come on, hey, just, that's no big deal. But when, knowing that the Lord's coming back soon is a reminder to us that we don't, shouldn't have to worry about that. Why? Because God's gonna, Christ, is, when he comes back, is going to make all things right. But what's more, not only is he going to make all things right, but the offense in comparison to the coming of Christ, the presence of Christ, will pale in comparison, right, to his glory. It's like, you know, you get a paper cut. Oh, oh man, you know how paper cuts, like, once you get it, it's like, oh, man, ow, ow, That's just me. Okay. But, you know, it bugs you. You're like, oh, man, I got to deal with this. But then... Then you see your favorite person in the world. You've totally forgot about your paper cut. Right? Because you saw the favorite person in your world. Just think about that with regards to your trials. Whatever trials you may go through, whatever offenses are committed against you, whatever paper cuts have been, that have been, you've experienced, they will pale in comparison when the Lord returns. You will see his glory. You're like, what? Oh, it's just a paper cut, Lord. No, it was nothing. I'm so glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you. Remember the Lord, the remembering the Lord's nearness is a motivation to us to manifest gentleness, to have a gentle spirit toward all. Because the one who's going to make it right is coming back soon. But it's just even, not, even so, it's not really about making it right. 
It's the fact that we're going to see our Lord. And when we remember our Lord, we remember how much he's forgiven us. He's forgiven us so much. Can we forgive others as well? A last and seventh uh, reminder, Christians are reminded in verse 2, to show every consideration for every, all men. <clears throat> Believers are to show consideration. That means, uh, it says, again, the idea of gentleness, meekness, humility. Uh, and instead of defining it, really, we could just simply say that Jesus Christ was the perfect example of this consideration. Oftentimes, it's translated as meekness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the same word here for consideration. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are to be ready to give an account for our faith, yet with gentleness and reverence. In Galatians 6.1, we are to correct a sinning brother in a spirit of gentleness, consideration, Humility, meekness, all these words are, are considered. Decided to consider is to just be, to be completely considerate of another. We're to show complete consideration, to, to be thought, thinking of them more than we are of, of ourselves. And the phrase all men conveys the, the universality of this, this, uh, this conduct. We're to show consideration for all men towards everyone, not just the people we like, not just the believers, but to Christians, the people we don't like, to people we disagree with, especially, people who offend us and hurt us. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we saw that the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all men. If God did not withhold his very own son for all men, then how can we treat those very same people with contempt, hatred, or avoidance. We're to love them. We're to be gentle, show every consideration to them. We're to be friendly towards them, loving towards them, considerate of them, so they might see the love of Christ in us. So these are the seven qualities, seven characteristics that are mod- that should reflect Christians who live in our world. Christian living in the world basically is our, the church's opportunity to show Christ in the world. How when we conduct ourselves in these way, these seven attributes, think about it. If you kind of take some time to reflect upon it, you realize that Christ reflected these seven attributes on, in his life upon the earth. For Jesus himself was submissive. He was obedient. He was ready for every good deed in his life that came across his path. He maligned no one. He was peaceable. He was gentle, and he showed every consideration for all. And most importantly, he did all these things. All these things were manifest when he died on the cross for our sins. And so, Christians, when you and I conduct ourselves in the world by being submissive, obedient, ready for every good deed, maligning no one, being peaceable, gentle, and showing every consideration for all, we too show Christ to our world. That's what we do. Uh, and so, and I tell you the truth, as I was reflecting upon these things, I was thinking, these are hard to do, Lord. It's so easy to be selfish at times, to want to fight for our rights. 
especially when our lives or our family are at stake. But God sent us his son. And his son did not hold anything back. His son gave up his life for us. By the grace of God, we then, in light of that, may, do, may strive to be the same so that we would show the world our, how great our Savior is and how gracious and loving and kind he is. And that's what we'll look at uh, a little bit next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time. Thank you for your word. May you continue to shape and mold us, make us people that reflect Christ as Christians living in this world especially a political world where there's a lot of uh, anger and hatred and bitterness. Help us to be gracious, loving, kind, thoughtful of others. Help us to show uh, all respect, all, all uh, uh, submission and obedience to our authorities, government as well as uh, uh, in, our, uh, in our society so that Christ might be made known. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish this in our lives by the power of your spirit dwelling within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.